Let me begin this morning's sermon by reading a statement that I think is important. I want you to hear my heart because I believe that we live in a very prophetic time where we are seeing, hear me very clearly, we are seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in front of our eyes. And you live on borrowed time and time is short. And whenever we talk about prophecy and whenever we talk about the reality of the soon and coming king, you know what happens in the room? The fear and reverence of God comes on people because you recognize we live on borrowed time. We live on borrowed time. Now hear me. Friday night around midnight, news began to break that Israel was yet again under attack from Muslim extremists who are wholeheartedly committed to the annihilation of the Jewish state. On the 50-year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, Israel found itself again under siege. As Islamic militants committed acts of terror meant at driving Israel from their ancestral homeland. Over the last 48 hours, more than 5,000 rockets have been indiscriminately fired into Jewish neighborhoods. Hundreds of innocent civilians have been brutally killed and their bodies been paraded through the streets. Children have been stolen from their mothers. Women have been assaulted. Utter chaos has been unleashed on dozens of cities around that nation. Let me be clear. Israel has the absolute unmitigated right to defend her borders and her citizens by eliminating these terrorist cells and those who fund them. Make no mistake, this church stands with Israel and unequivocally condemns these unprecedented acts of terror. But let me take it a step further today, and I'm irritated. The very reason why these campaigns of terror have been emboldened is in part due to the malicious incompetence of the current U.S. administration. Who less than one month ago released $6 billion to the nation of Iran who is the primary state sponsor of terror against Israel. If all you were to do is listen to the mainstream news, they would convince you that Israel is the aggressor. Israel won't agree to a treaty. Israel refuses to lay down its weapons. If Hamas were to lay down their weapons, Israel would have peace. If Israel were to lay down her weapons, she would be eliminated. Hear me, friends. The nations that surround Israel do not want peace. They want the annihilation of the Jewish people and you cannot negotiate with satanic ideologies. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. In Genesis 15, God reiterates this unconditional promise, to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. In Genesis 17, God again repeats this promise to Abraham, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. As far as scripture is concerned, there is no such thing as a two-state solution. The nation of Israel belongs to Israel because when God makes a promise, he intends to keep it. I do not now, nor have I ever, subscribe to replacement theology 
The idea that somehow God has replaced Israel with the church and no longer has a special plan and purpose for the Jewish people. I believe what the scriptures teach. That as the end of the age begins to draw near, the nations of the earth will rise in opposition to Israel in an attempt to annihilate God's chosen people. And there will be a day where a final battle is waged in a place called the Valley of Armageddon. And when all hope looks lost, Christ himself will descend with a sword and defend his people and vanquish the nations of the earth. And all of Israel will recognize that Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah. Ask yourself this question, why? Why are there widespread celebrations in nations like Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, Afghanistan, and others as the news of these terrorist attacks spread? Why are these Muslim-majority nations absolutely committed to the genocidal idea of wiping Israel off the map? Is it because their land is so valuable? Is it because their resources are so great? Why is this tiny sliver of a nation such a threat to its neighbors. Let me tell you, because Israel serves as a reminder that a covenant-keeping God has preserved his people and every lesser God is operating on borrowed time and on borrowed land. Now, Scripture instructs us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we will do that in just a moment. But we are believing that God will continue to show himself strong to the nation of Israel and somehow, some way, use what the enemy has intended for evil, for good. And in doing so, we will see a harvest of souls in that part of the world. The destruction for the nation of Israel is not a new idea, it's an old idea. It was in Esther's day as well. And Mordecai had to come to his relative Esther and say, listen, if you don't go before the king, do not think your family will be saved. They'll come for you next. And finally, Esther said, look, whether I live or whether I die, I will go contend for the nation that I am from. And so I want to spend some time this morning and let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, today, as scripture commands, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem that the Prince of Peace would take his rightful place in that nation, that you would bring an end to the violence and destruction, and in doing so, you would establish your people in a place of perpetual peace and hope. God, I pray that you would give now strategy to governmental leaders, military leaders, that you would give hope and grace and great comfort to those who are mourning unprecedented losses today. God, I thank you that scripture says you are close to the broken and contrite, so I pray that you would be close to your people and that in doing so, the love of God would surround them. Scripture says you are a strong tower. The righteous run into you and they are made safe. I pray that you would turn rockets back on the enemy that you would set up angelic guards around the Jewish people. And that in doing so, the same God, hear me, 
the same God who preserved the Hebrew people as they fled Egypt, the same God who protected the Hebrew nation as they walked into the land of Canaan and defeated the Amorites and the Jesubites and all the other nations that infiltrated that land, the same God who has proved himself faithful over and over again, the one who commands the angel armies of heaven. God, I pray now you would encompass that place and supernaturally that you would preserve your people and that you would lead them in the way everlasting. Reveal yourself to the nation of Israel and may they see you for who you truly are. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen. I feel like it'd be appropriate to <clears throat> preach this morning out of the book of Revelation because it feels like whenever you turn on the news, you're asking yourself the question, what chapter of Revelation are we in today? I wanna start in Revelation one because it gives us a foundation for why this book was constructed in the first place. It's written by a man that we call the Apostle John. He writes the book of John, which is the fourth gospel. He writes 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John which are his apostolic letters to the churches in Asia Minor, and he writes the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation comes to John as he is on the island of Patmos. He has been sent there by the Roman government. They tried to kill him. He refuses to die. They tried to boil John alive in a vat of oil in the Roman Colosseum in front of 80,000 people. Not only does John not die, but he uses the vat of oil as a pulpit to preach the resurrection of Christ. The entire Colosseum gets saved. The Roman government is so irritated that the only thing that they have left to do is abandon him on an island all by himself and hope that he dies. Not only does he not die, he has an open vision of that which is to come, the throne room of Christ Jesus, and he writes in brilliant fashion about the glory and the beauty of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it becomes the bookend for the closed canon, and in doing so, helps set the church in an eschatological trajectory, keeping their eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith, and clinging to the blessed hope, which is one day his eventual bodily return. And in Revelation 1, starting in verse 1, this is how John begins that letter. Watch, he says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must shortly take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John is writing about his experience in the third person. And he begins like this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation in the original Greek is the word apocalypsis. It's where we get the Greek word apocalypse. When we think about that word apocalypse today, we have these sci-fi images of nuclear war and utter destruction, but that is not originally what that word meant. That word revelation in the Greek, it means unveiling. The imagery here is that of a bride's veil being lifted on her wedding day, thus revealing beauty to the one who waits in eager expectation. John is saying this, this book, these words, this truth, it exists to lift the veil off of your eyes so that you can see the beauty of Jesus because when you do, everything in your Christian life begins to change. Hear me, friend. The heart of God is to reveal Christ. 
The plan of Satan is to conceal Christ. And the job of the church is to proclaim Christ until every eye can see him for who he truly is. The apostle Paul outlines this in his letter to the church in Corinth. Second Corinthians four, Paul says this, Satan, who is the God of this world, lowercase g, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. But what we proclaim, what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but of as Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. <laughs> the full-time work of the enemy is to blind people to the glorious light of Christ's good news. The full-time job of the church is to proclaim the message of Jesus from the authoritative, inspired words of Scripture until the Word of God, which is like a hammer, breaks the heart of stone, reveals the heart of flesh, and lifts the blinders off of those who cannot see him for who he truly is. This is <coughs> the experience that Saul has on the road to Damascus where all of a sudden the Bible says a great light blinds him. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the Bible says blinders come off of his eyes. And in a finite moment of time, Saul goes from being the greatest enemy of the church to being transformed into the greatest promoter and supporter of the church. Why? Because he saw the beauty, the brilliance, and the light of who Jesus is. Is. For some of you, you have had this experience because you were maybe the first person in your family to get saved, or maybe you were a prodigal, you were far from God, you were lost, you were in the miry clay. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You were far from him, you were barely hanging on, you don't even deserve to be seated where you are at today, but in a finite moment, God interrupted the plan of the enemy, and it was like blinders came off of your eyes. <laughs> I, I, I had this experience a number of years ago. I, I got a call on my cell phone and it was from a number that I did not recognize and I answered it and it was a scam phone call I later found out. But it was one of those scam phone calls who whoever was on the other side probably needs to be in Hollywood because they would have an Oscar for acting. And they wove this incredible story of great need and all these types of things. And they had done research and they knew the name of the church and they knew my name. And, you know, they took me along this journey and this story of basically warming me up so that they could make their request and they needed access to these types of accounts and so on and so forth. And looking at it now, it's like, how could I be so foolish? And how could you ever fall for that? And it sounds completely dumb to even entertain, but while you're in the middle of the story without you even recognizing it, blinders are being added to your eyes. And it's true about sin. The chains of sin are too small to be felt until they're too large to be broken. You don't even know you are 
being blinded while you are being blinded. And all of a sudden, as they're engaging me in this story, I'm getting ready to take out my wallet and look up the account and figure out way I can help. And all of a sudden, in like one finite moment of time, somebody who was in the room, who was over here in the conversation, looked at me and said, look, some don't feel right about this. I think this is a scam. As soon as they said those words, it was like revelation hit my heart. My eyes were opened and I recognized this attempt for what it actually was. I had a moment of revelation where truth, which sets men free, impacted my heart and I could see the circumstance for what it was. And when you get saved, that is what happens in a spiritual sense in your life. All of a sudden you go, man, I've been eating food in the pig's pen. I'm headed to a Christless eternity. I believe the wrong things. I've pledged my allegiance to the wrong stuff. I've given my life to death and destruction. The enemy who's come to steal, kill, and destroy has laid claim to my heart. And Christ's truth breaks up that stone, takes you into a moment of revelation by which the veil is lifted. When Marie and I got married, the entire budget for our wedding was under $3,000. When I hear about people who get married today and their budget is thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, I don't even have context for that type of wedding. <laughs> the church we got married at was free. The food at the reception, homemade. Our DJ was a CD player. We was in no debt after that wedding because it didn't cost nothing to put on. <laughs> Some people get 100,000 in debt for a glorious wedding. They got no money for the actual marriage. There was only one thing that we actually splurged on. There was only one thing. It was Maria's wedding dress and veil. I paid for it personally. Now, I know you're looking at this photo and you're thinking to yourself, how on earth did she land you? And I don't know. <laughs> but when I was thinking about this word revelation in the context of unveiling, I thought about this. <clears throat> when you're wearing a veil, it's not that you can't see. It's that your vision is just cloudy enough to make it nearly impossible to accurately see. Now watch, when you see Christ through a veil, you'll see him as a teacher, but not as your friend. You'll see him as a judge, but not as your advocate. You'll see him as a wise philosopher, but not as king and as savior. Even in our culture today, I think that there is some sort of baseline appreciation for the myth and the mystery and the legend and the historical narrative of who Jesus was. But the problem is if you hear media talk about Jesus, you hear culture talk about Jesus, you hear the outside world talk about Jesus, they talk about him through a veil that clouds their heart. He is a lot of things, but he's not king. 
He's a lot of things, but he is not savior. He is a lot of things, but he is not the only begotten son of God raised from the dead by God's own spirit on the third day. As soon as you start making those claims, you're having a moment of revelation like Peter had when Jesus asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father above and upon that revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What Jesus is communicating to Peter is a lot of other people just think I'm a prophet. A lot of other people think I'm just a wise teacher. A lot of other people think I just kind of operate in some kind of low level miracles. But when you are proclaiming that I am the son of the living God, that is not a human statement. That is a divine statement. It was not revealed to you by human wisdom. It was revealed to you by divine wisdom. And the only way that you are able to make that claim that Christ is Lord is that the veil has been lifted from the heart of your life. And watch how you see him is so important because how you see him is how you will reveal him. Now, I don't know about you, but I just about never have time to watch football on a Sunday. We got service all morning, get home half an hour, leave for Seattle. We got service Sunday night. So if I ever watch a game, which is, which is not normal, but if I ever do, I'll catch it on Saturday, which means I'm watching college. And I don't follow football enough to be able to know the names and the metrics and the stats. And, you know, some people, they got fantasy football and they got fantasy baseball and they got fantasy base- basketball and really they got a fantasy life. <laughs> my fantasy team ain't doing well. I say, I got a hard enough time living in reality, let alone managing a fantasy life. <laughs> but that's a word for somebody. <laughs> All we got is a fantasy life. <laughs> A life that we pretend to live vicariously through somebody else who has the courage to try stuff we never would. But I've been struck by this story of this college football team this year. The college football team is called Colorado. I don't even know the name of the team, but it's Colorado. And the reason why I love Colorado is because of Coach Prime, Deion Sanders. And he's kind of this electric personality and the media loves him. He's always got these big old goofy sunglasses and he's wearing a cowboy hat and it's just Coach Prime is this electric figure. But the reason why I actually love watching him coach is this. He has two sons that are on the football team. One who plays on offense is the quarterback and one who plays on defense, a boy named Shiloh, he's a safety. And I was watching a game a few weeks ago and something crazy happened and the spirit of God spoke to me as I saw it. And the other team had the ball and they was making a long pass. And at the very last minute, his son Shiloh, who plays safety, stepped in the way, intercepted the ball. He caught it by the sideline and he ran the ball all the way back 70, 80 yards for a touchdown. Now here's why I loved watching this. Because as he caught the ball near the sideline, dad was standing on the other side. And when Shiloh caught the ball and began to run, Dion began to run and they ran in tangent together all the way down and Shiloh scored the touchdown and dad is jumping up and down. And so fast forward to the end of the game and coach Prime is giving the end of game press conference and one of them asked him. He said, then that was pretty interesting, coach Prime. You ain't a player, you're the coach. Coach don't have to run. Coach can sit in the armchair. Coach can sit on the sideline. You pay people to run. You coach kids to run. You don't gotta run. You don't gotta be undignified. You don't gotta pick up your tunic and run like that. Come on, that's not what a coach does. Why would you do that? And he said, well, number one, I haven't run that much or that hard in years. But he said, number two is this. 
He said, I know I'm his coach, but I've always been his dad. And he said, when he caught that ball, dad mode got activated in my heart. I couldn't help myself. So I began to run. And I thought to myself, is this not the God that we serve? He is not one who just coaches us from a throne. You should have done that. Do it different this time. Here's the play. Here's the blueprint on how to run the church. I'll wait for you on the finish line. Good game, bad game, inbounds, out of bounds. Is he not the God who when we catch the ball runs alongside of us because before he was ever a coach, he was our father. It's not that God isn't a coach. It's that he is not primarily a coach. He is primarily a father. It is not that God is not a judge. He is not primarily a judge. He is primarily a father, which means that these characteristics of how he operates in the earth, they emanate from his primary essence, which is as a father. For when God breathed into dirt in the garden and made man, and man opened his eyes and took his first breath in, he breathed out, Abba, you're my father. And you need a primary revelation today that God's a lot of things. Yes, it's true. But the first thing he is to you is the father who runs right alongside you every step of the way. You don't have that revelation until the veil of religion is lifted off your heart. Until the veil of hardship and abuse is lifted off your heart. Till the veil of negative family systems is lifted off of your heart. You can't have that revelation that God is your father. He is good. He is kind. He is the father of lights. In him there is no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes from the father above. His blessing makes you rich and adds no sorrow. By his stripes we are healed. His blood has forgiven us. He has given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out Abba. He has seated us in heavenly places. He's removed the curse off of our lives. He removed our iniquity as far as the east is from the... You don't have that revelation until the veil is lifted off your heart. (laughs) That's why it's such a tragedy when secular-minded people try to make judgments about who God is based on their interpretation of scripture. Paul says only the spiritual minded can understand spiritual things. This is a love letter. This is a love letter. When you read about the commands of God and the laws of God and the structure of God and the principles of God, those are not to bind you, those are to free you. But if you read them with a secular mind, you'll walk away from this book and go, ah, it's just rules and regulations. God wants to kill all my joy. I can't have no fun if I become a Christian. No, when you read this in a spiritual mind, You go, no, God so radically loved me that he has the blueprint for my life. He knows how best to protect my soul and my identity. So therefore I can trust him with the restrictions that I read about in this book. 
Now, life has a funny way of adding veils to our vision that sometimes we don't even know are there. Veils that are connected to our upbringing, our church experience, our family systems, our past trauma and hurts. Before long, everything we see carries the impact of that last season. John writes the church and said, this word has the ability to wash your vision. This word has the authority to correct your perspective. This word has the power to lift the veil. And when it does, you will feel like you are seeing for the very first time. Watch. Isn't it interesting what scripture says without vision, people cast off restraint? A lot of people quote it, they say without vision, people perish, and that's one way to quote it. The more accurate translation of that verse is without vision, people cast off restraint. Watch, which means this. If people don't have something compelling to look at and live for, they will conduct themselves as those who are lawless and without self-control. Watch, watch, watch. It is not the words of my marriage document that keeps me committed to my wife. It's the vision I have for my family. It's not my employment contract that keeps me committed to this church. It's the vision I have for this community. When you have a compelling vision from God because the veil has been lifted off of your eyes, it will naturally create barriers and borders that you happily submit to because you don't want to do anything that would cause that which you live for to be compromised in a way that would ultimately undermine your vision. It's the difference between how you treat a place that you are renting and how you treat a place that you are owning. You know, when I travel, we always rent these cars, you know, at the airport. And you know what I love about renting these cars? You can bring it back with just about any amount of trash in that car. And as long as the car is not harmed, dented, dinged, scratched, or damaged, they're gonna clean it for you. I pull that car up. I drop it off at the rental desk. I know there's a garbage can right there, but I ain't using it. Because I paid to rent this car, and part of my rental fee is you cleaning this car. And I want to contribute to the economy. I don't want to do your job for you. You might lose your job. But do you remember what it was like when you bought your first car? Your rattle trap death car? It went zero to 60 sometimes. It looked like it had been through a war or two itself. It was as ugly as sin. But when you saved up enough money to buy your very first car, you said, don't even look at it. Don't breathe in it. Don't eat food in it. Ain't no French fries in this thing. Ain't no kids drinking nothing in this car. You protected that thing with your life. Not because it had some sort of exterior great value like some luxury Lamborghini, but because it took sacrifice of your life to be able to purchase it. And all of a sudden, the sacrifice that it took to accomplish that vision item that you had has now created boundaries and barriers that you gratefully submit to so you can protect the value of that which you have vision for. Yes. <sighs> Hear me, friend. The revealing and the unveiling of Jesus Christ doesn't happen at the end of the age. It happens as soon as you open this word and start reading these words. And you begin to recognize God is more brilliant than I ever dared to imagine. Let me give you two more things. Let me end here. Verse three is this. This is what John is saying. 
Blessed is he who reads these words. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written on it because the time is near. Revelation is the only book in the Bible that you get a blessing just for reading it. Notice, it doesn't say, blessed are you who are able to understand it all. It says, blessed are you when you read it, hear it, and take it to heart. I've been reading Revelation my entire life. I might understand it less today than I did 10 years ago. But my goal is not to try and develop a chart and a timeline for when Christ is gonna return. It's to be drawn into the beauty of the God who these pages declare is worthy of my praise and adoration. You can read this book and miss the point. Don't be one of those. It is not a revelation of the end times. It is not a revelation of how bad it's gonna get. It's not a revelation of hiding out in your bunker with freeze-dried food until he returns. It is a revelation of the power and the glory of a king who is soon returning. Here's what I know when I read the book of Revelation. Time is short, Jesus is worthy, hell is hot, and heaven is good. And as John is on the island of Patmos, all by his lonesome, the Bible says he found himself in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard a voice in heaven that said, John, come up higher. Let me show you the things that are to take place. My message for you this morning pursuit is come up higher there's a voice that ushers you in invitation. It's time for your heart to be unveiled. It's time for the blinders to come off your eyes. It's time for compelling vision to now dictate and determine how you're gonna walk worthy of the calling God has placed on your life. It's time to see the things that must take place prior to his return. It's time to recognize the time and the season in which you live. It's time to recognize prophecy is playing out on the TV screens all around us in a world that teeters on craziness and on collapse with every waking day. But we know in this world we will have trouble, but we are of good cheer for Christ in fact has overcome the world. And we know in the final estimation of things, our redeemer lives. He will walk on the earth. He will balance the books of his history and in doing so he will oversee the gathering of the harvest here's the position of believers in this hour refuse to live in a spirit of fear for God has given you power love and a sound mind and allow this great word to unveil the eyes of your understanding so you can see not a victim Jesus, but a victorious Jesus who sits above the circle of the earth and when the nations rage, he laughs knowing that he is in control. The church's job is to see his beauty, but your heart has to be unveiled today by the reading of this word. Come on, stand as we close.